stand. Actually, no, I'm just kidding. You, you, can, you can sit. Uh, good afternoon. It's, it's, it's wonderful to be back with you again. You guys have uh, been so encouraging and hospitable to me. It's, it's been a blessing uh, to be here with you and excited to spend some time in Second Peter, all right, which is, you might be surprised, it's not always connected to First Peter when people think about these documents, right? I mean, they're next to each other in the canon, right? First Peter, Second Peter. They got the same name on them, so it might seem like they would naturally belong together, but they, they're actually different in some pretty significant ways. Uh, and so we'll talk some about that, though I think we might also notice some, some resonances uh, between these, these documents as well as we look at them together this weekend and then, of course, throughout the, throughout the spring for you all. Um, I, think, I think I mentioned this to, to at least one or two of you as individuals, but I don't think I've said anything to, to the group. Um, but again, I, I've been very appreciative of the, of the encouragement that you have provided for me. I know as I was coming down and thinking about being here with you, right, and one of the, one of the blessings of kind of having a drive like that to come down is there's, there's some time for the mind to kind of calm down and to focus. And I don't know about you, but sometimes on those drives, those can be some of the most powerful moments of prayer for me. I don't, you know, life seems to be pretty busy and I have a hard time getting out of my own head, but when I'm driving and there's kind of nothing else to focus on, then sometimes I'm able to, to connect and pray. And so I was, I was trying to take advantage of that opportunity as I drove down and was thinking about this weekend, thinking about being with you and, and, and the prayer um, that I thought about or that, that, that I offered to God um, was that I, I loved you all already, right, as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, Right? But, but I loved you in a kind of general abstract way because I didn't know you yet. Right? And so I said, God, I, I love them, of course, but, but you love them in a specific way that I, I can't. You know each one so specifically. And so my prayer, God, is that somehow through me you would love your children here at MacArthur Park over, the, over this weekend because you know who they are and how to love them in a way, the way that I don't. And so that, that's, that was my prayer, and I hope in some ways that that has been true. Right, that we, that we have, as we have spent some time in First Peter and now some time in Second Peter, uh, that, that if there's something that you have experienced, maybe it's that God is, is loving you and, and that somehow anything right, that I've been able to say about these writings or anything else that's happened has, has contributed to that. That's, that's been my prayer, and I hope that that's been true for you. Uh, so, again, we're, we're going to jump in with Second with Peter and do some of the same things we did last time with First Peter, just laying out some of the basic context, and then... Right, we're, you know, take a deep breath here for me. We're going to try to hear Second Peter like we did First Peter. Right? Thankfully, it's a little shorter, so uh, we'll get through that. But let, let's talk about uh, some of the, the basics, right, just like we did with, um, with uh, uh, First Peter. Right? Things like, I think I turned it on. Oh, there we go. Does that mean now? Am I controlling it? Are you controlling it? You got it? Okay. Well, you just have to keep up. You can do that, right? Yeah, you did great uh, this morning. Uh, yeah, that worked better than when I was controlling it myself, probably. So, uh, all right, so again, the, the questions that we asked last time are, are questions of the setting. These are occasional writings. That is, that they're written to a specific occasion. That the more familiar that we can be with that occasion, the more likely we are to understand the, 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 the letter, the, the, the communication. Right, and so that's what we want to do here, just like we did with, uh, with First Peter. And so, again, we want to ask questions like, who's the author? What's going on there? What's the, what's the audience? What can we know about some of these things? And so, where did we begin last time? If you want to figure out who the, the sender or author of a letter is, where do you go, right? Verse 1, 1, right? And so if we, if we start there in 1, 1, we see uh, with, with Second Peter right, some of the things that we saw before. Try it again. There we go. Yeah, so who's the author? 
Where is he? Who's with him? Right? Uh, what, what, what might the situation be? So who is the author? Right? We check 1-1, one, one, just like we did last time, and we see here right, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, pretty much the same way right, that he refers to himself in 1 Peter. A little bit different. Right? We, get, we get an additional title, right? servant and apostle. And he calls himself Simon Peter, adds that name, right, uh, that from uh, kind of his Palestinian name, right, that, that Peter, as we remember, is his nickname, right, Rock. That's the nickname Jesus gave him, right, so he calls himself Simon Peter, right, and then if we, if we scan through other parts of the letter, and we'll hopefully hear this here in a minute, he also says some other things about himself, or right? what he notes is that he's an eyewitness of, of the majesty of Jesus, he says, and specifically what he'll talk about is he was an eyewitness of the transfiguration, that's, a, that's an important part. Of, of the, uh, the argument in Second Peter. So we learn that little bit about, uh, about the author, from what he tells us in the letter. Right? And so then, right, the other question might be, all right, what else can we know? Where, where is he? Who's with him? Right? Let's try to build this, this setting. And so where did we go last time to, to figure out some of these questions? Who might be with him? Where the author might be? Those kind of things. You go to the end often. That's where you get some concluding greetings. Right? You offer some, some, some greetings from the folks who are with you to the folks that, that, that you're writing to, and maybe you say a word about where you are. Unfortunately, in right, Second Peter, if we check the end, we find it, it's pretty slim on details. And that's not unknown in the New Testament. Right? There are other letters that also don't provide a lot of context in them. Something like Ephesians, for example, uh, doesn't include a lot of other information about kind of who Paul might be with and those kind of things that he's writing. So that's not completely unknown, but it does leave us a little bit more in the dark. It's harder to fill in uh, what the situation might be for, th- for this particular letter. Right, but we do get some information from Peter, some more information about his situation. Right, so even if we can't be too precise maybe about where he is from the letter itself, and, and if there are other folks with him, um, again, I think the assumption there are, right, we talked about last time how ancient letters were composed, and it's a corporate process involving multiple people. So I think we can assume that he, he's not alone. He just doesn't tell us who he's with this time. Maybe it's the same group as, as with First Peter, but there's no way to know how, how close in time this was written. Right? But it does, there, the one, one thing that we, we do see right, that, that Peter tells us is some about his own situation uh, and what's happening. And if we look in verses 12 to 15, and we, get, we get a little bit of an insight into what's happening and maybe partly what is prompting the letter. I think there's some other things that are, that are maybe going on in the audience that he's writing to, right? but at least part of what's prompting it is what, te- what he tells us in Verses 12 and following. Right? This is coming from the NRSV. Therefore, I intend to keep on reminding you of these things, though you know them already and are established in the truth that has come to you. I think it right, so long as I am in the body, to refresh your memory, since I know that my death will come soon, as indeed our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. And so, so he indicates here, he's writing this uh, as he sees death looming on the horizon. He knows it's coming, and so this is kind of one last thing he wants to make sure he gets to say before that happens. Right? And so, so this sets up a, a kind of the, a, the genre in some ways of this particular letter. Right? He, it's taking the form of a last will and testament, so to speak. Right, here's kind of the, the, my, my last words before I die, right? Deathbed instructions to, to these people that he cares about and, and loves. And, and I, th- that is actually a specific genre right, that we find other examples of in, in ancient literature, other examples of in Jewish and Christian literature. 
right, where we, where we have figures who write their, their kind of last testament as they're preparing to die. They send off some words to those they care for and those they love. And, and so I want to pause here and say some things about this that will get us into uh, some of the um, kind of delicate, I would say, interpretive issues with, with, with Second Peter. Right? And some of the reasons it's not always connected with First Peter when people read it. Right? So I want to talk some, just a little bit of an aside, right? We're kind of pause and let's, let's dig into this a little bit more and then we'll, we'll come back and talk some more about the context. But I want to talk some about uh, testamentary liter- literature, testaments, right? last wills and testaments. Because we find other examples of them and so it might help us properly hear and, and, and read Second Peter if we know how this genre typically works. And I think that's always important, right, to keep in mind genre because that helps us ask the right questions and bring the right expectations. All right, if you're picking up uh, the, the sports section and expecting a weather report, that's right, not going to make sense. You've got you to bring the right set, set, set of expectations to what you're reading. And so uh, what, what kind of things might we find in uh, testamentary literature? Right, here's some features of, of this genre that are pretty typical from the other examples that we can look at. One, you, you typically have an, an Old Testament figure of some kind. Right, that is delivering this final message to people that he knows and loves before he dies. Like a, a Moses figure, or we, you know, some, maybe one of the patriarchs, right, the, the, the sons of, uh, of Jacob. Right? And so we, we've got other examples of this kind of thing happening where, where a figure like this is offering this advice. Right? And uh, the advice they offer typically is emphasizing ethical exhortation. Right? It's kind of like, I'm getting ready to die. When I'm gone, I won't be here to remind you how you should live, so let me give one last shot at it here, right? Here's how you should live. Here's the kind of people you should be. That's pretty common in, in this type of literature. And we'll see, I think, that's part of what's going on in Second Peter as well, right? Peter's offering some ethical exhortations to this audience before he can no longer do so, right, after he, after he dies. And then another thing that you often find, right, is that uh, in these testaments, the, the figure who's about to die will offer some warnings, right, may, that are maybe kind of predictions about things that are going to happen after his death, right? So look out, make sure you're living this way, and kind of watch out, because here's some things that are going to happen to you, right? I don't want you to, to be unprepared. I don't want this to surprise you. So live this way and be ready for, for these things to happen, right? So you have the, those exhortations and those predictions that are often a part of, of this genre. Now, those predictions, right, lead us into uh, some other things that we might want to keep in mind about testamentary literature, and so I'll come back to that here in a little bit, right? But if we're Looking at other examples, like where, where might we find some other testaments like this? Right? Um, there, there's not a lot that we find in the biblical text itself, right? but if we can look at other Jewish literature and other Christian literature, we can find some other examples. One of the best examples uh, is uh, from a, a set of writings that's called the Testament of, Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs. Right? So each of the twelve sons of Jacob right, offer their last will and testament for their children and, and their people before they die. And so you have these writings. They're, they're Jewish writings right, that were not included in the Old Testament. They're written much later than the writings that are included in the Old Testament. Uh, and they've actually, in the form we have them, have been heavily Christianized. That is, there were Christian communities that really liked these and kept them and copied them and you know, would kind of add references to Jesus sometimes and things like that into these, these testaments. Right? But that's one example that we have. Right? You could go find the the. T- of, of Joseph, right, or the testament you wanted to in, and read through and kind of see how these, how these genres typically work, right? They're probably available online should you want to go and find them, right? So that's an example, but the, one of the examples we have that's actually in the biblical book, it's, uh, in, in the Bible itself, would be the book of Deuteronomy. Now, it's really long, and so it, it, it feels different than something short like, like Second Peter, but that's the setup for Deuteronomy. Moses 
is there on the banks of the Jordan with the people of Israel, knowing he's going to die before they cross over. And he knows. It's, it's, time's up. And so Deuteronomy is his last will and testament. Right? Here's how you need to live. Let me tell you one last time before I go. You're not going to have me to lead you anymore, so let me remind you. And if you read through Deuteronomy, there's lots of predictions about what's going to happen in the future. Right? It, when you disobey what I'm telling you to do, right? kind of knows. I'm, I'm telling you, but you're not going to do it, and here's what's going to happen when you don't. So you get that all those features of, uh, of a testament are there in Deuteronomy, just in a, in a much extended form. Right? Deuteronomy is a pretty long book. But, that, but that's an example of the kind of thing that we're having here with, uh, with Second Peter. Now, this is, this is the kind of delicate part right, that I, I, I want to step into just so it doesn't catch you off guard if you encounter these kinds of uh, arguments in any of your research on 2 Peter as you're reading and preparing uh, to study it or to teach it. Right? Most often, right, in examples that we have, testaments are literary fictions. Right? By which I mean, no one thinks Joseph wrote the Testament of Joseph. Right? It's, 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 a, it's a transparent literary fiction. Right? It's, it's a literary device Right? Whoever is writing it is thinking, let's imagine what Joseph might have said to his children. Right? And so they're writing that, imagining the kind of ethical exhortations he would have given and the kind of predictions he would have given from a time right, later on in history. And so often what Joseph is predicting, for example, in this testament, are things that are happening in the life of the audience, right? the people who are composing this testament. And they're not trying to trick anybody here, right? They're not trying to make you think that Joseph actually wrote this, right? It's a transparent literary fiction. It's, it's, a, it's an exercise in imagination, right? And, and it's an exercise in imagination through which God's truth can be communicated to his people. Right? You know, I'm somebody who thinks a novel can communicate a whole lot of truth. I don't, I don't have to read nonfiction to have truth communicated to me about what, what is the human condition, what is true in the world, and those kind of things, right? So, so that's an example here. Right? These are uh, people are composing these testaments, test, testaments as, again, kind of exercise in imagination, these, these transparent fictions, because they, that's a method, that's a technique for exploring some of these issues and exploring what God would want for his people. Now, I mention that because that could have some bearing on what we think about Second um, Peter. And one of the things that you might encounter if you're reading about second peter very much are questions about is peter really the author of this particular letter all right there's some questions about first peter as well but but far more questions about second peter right you're going to encounter that uh pretty quickly i would think if you dig very deeply into research on second peter and, and one of the reasons that people would doubt that is the genre right the genre typically is fiction right and, and so not, not only is, it, is the genre typically that way, but there's, there's even maybe some, some hints, right, within um, Second Peter itself. Right? So one of the things that we'll notice as, as we hear it is that uh, the, the document will shift from future tense to present tense when talking about uh, the, 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 the people, right, that he's referring to. So we'll, we'll go in chapter 2 from him saying they will do this, this will happen, to all of a sudden, right, a few verses a few verses later, they are doing this, this is happening. Right? And that shift in tenses is a little awkward. Right? Is he predicting what's going to happen, or is he talking about things that are happening? Well, if, it's a, if, if we're working within this testamentary genre where it's a literary fiction, and it's an author who's kind of imagining, hey, what would Peter have predicted about the things that we're experiencing now, then maybe that shift makes sense. And part of what that would clue us into is, again, nobody's trying to trick anybody here. Right? Everybody's in 
who's hearing this document on, on the fact that this is an, an exercise in imagination. Okay, so that, that'd be one, that, that shifting of tenses is part of what might also contribute to this. The, the other piece, right, that this would have some effect on is the relationship between Second Peter and Jude. Because if you go to read through Jude, right, just a little one chapter letter, I think 23 verses in all, right, and then you go and read through Second Peter, what Second Peter reads like in some ways is an expansion of Jude. Right, you get almost, you know, in some ways verbatim passages from Jude in Second Peter in the same order they appear in Jude, roughly, right? Just expanded in certain places. And so one way to think about what's happening here is, again, if, if we've got an author who's kind of engaging in an exercise of the imagination, maybe the author is aware of something like Jude and is saying, hey, what was happening there that Jude was addressing, those same kind of things are happening now. I can take Jude's advice and kind of show, look, God has addressed this kind of thing in the past with his people, and he's gonna, he can be trusted to address it in the present now. Right? And that might be a way to explain the relationship between 2 Peter and Jude. Right? So again, the, this is delicate, right? because this, this can be unsettling to many of us to think about some of these things if we, if we never have before. Right? Uh, and so I'm, 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 I'm not here right, trying to convince you of something or advocate something, but I don't want you to be caught off guard Right, if you encounter these kinds of things before. And I think it's, I think it's the kind of thing that we don't, need, we don't need to hide from these questions. Right? Church should be the place where we can think about these kinds of questions, right? even as hard as, as they might be or as uncomfortable or, or as unsettling as they might be. Um, for me, right, as I think about it, I, I'm pretty comfortable being with, with ambiguity, actually, on this issue. Right? For me, I don't know that I, I need to come down real hard on that question to, to, to read and appreciate and learn from right, and be formed by this, this particular letter. Right. Because in the end, it's not in the New Testament because of who wrote it. Right. It's in the New Testament because God's Spirit was at work in bringing about this composition, not only at whatever moment it was written, but also right, in the moments that preceded that, in the community that gave birth to this writing, and in the moments that went after that as, the, as other communities shared and heard this writing, right, the Spirit is active in this whole process, and the reason I trust, right, that the Bible is inspired is not because I know who the author is, right, it's because I have made a faith commitment, right, that I'm trusting the Spirit has been at work in, the, in God's people, right, in bringing to us what we have in the Bible, right, so for me, I, that, that, that gives me some room to kind of, you know, be, be comfortable with some ambiguity here, right, and here, the arguments, right, back and forth, and, and then kind of think, all right, what, what makes sense to me, right? And if what makes sense to me is, yeah, I can see why it's hard to imagine this being written by Peter, that doesn't devastate my faith, right? It doesn't devastate my trust in Second Peter, right? Uh, but, I, but I'm also, like, I'm, I'm not saying that, I'm not advocating that, I'm just saying I, I really am uh, kind of ambiguous about this myself and maintain that ambiguity, right, uh, because I, I'm, I'm just open to hearing kind of what people, what people think about that. All right, now that... Again, that's kind of a delicate issue, but I didn't want you to be surprised if you came across that in, in, other, in other places. Um, and so, right, with that on the table, right, as we're hearing Second Peter, in the end, because we have such scant details about what's happening anyway in the life of this author, it, it hasn't made a huge difference to me in understanding the letter right, and, and hearing what it has to say, right, whether I think it's, it's from Peter or not. 
I think it still functions and still works, right, without having to have him decide. And so I think we can have people who think it is by Peter and people who think, well, I'm not so sure, and we still, right, can hear and learn and, and, and work with this particular writing. Right? In the end, I don't know that it makes a huge, has a huge impact on our, on our interpretation of this particular writing. So uh, what do we know then about who the audience is? Right, do we have any, any clues here? Now we're going to hear it here, hopefully in, in a little bit, and we'll pay attention to what is actually listening to the letter tell us about the audience. Right, but you know, if we go back to 1-1, one, one, it gives us often a little, little clue to the audience. What, what do we have here? To those who have received a faith as precious as ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Okay? Not real precise. Right? We, don't have, we don't have places that are mentioned like we did in 1 Peter or like we do in Paul's letters. Right? So we're not getting a lot of precise details. But he's writing, right? Obviously, he's not writing to convert people who aren't already part of the faith. These are people who are part of the Christian communities that the author has worked with, that Peter has worked with over the years, and, he, and he's writing to them now. Now, we might get some clues a little bit later. Right. In chapter 3, right, we add to this, right, those who have received the faith. In chapter 3, the author says, right, uh, in, in a couple of places, right, in three, one, he says, this is, the, this is the second time I've written to you. So again, supposing that this isn't an exercise in imagination, right, then what that's connecting it to is 1 Peter, right? So it's saying the same folks that received 1 Peter, now I'm writing to you again. Okay, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, he says in, in, in chapter 3, verse 1. Right? And another little interesting tidbit that we get in 2 Peter is he refers to another Christian leader who has written to his audience, this, this particular audience that he's writing to. So I've written you a previous letter, he tells them, right? but then he comes back later and says, and our beloved brother Paul has also written to you right? according to the wisdom given him when he wrote to you about these same things in his earlier letters to you. Right, so we've got an audience right, that's being set up here that's received earlier correspondence from Peter and now has also received, right, we're told to receive this correspondence from Paul. Right, can we kind of like triangulate and cross-reference and figure out right, who, who this might be? Okay, um, if we go back to our map, right, remember this is, this is a picture of, of who 1 Peter's written to. Right, remember we start with Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, right, that whole area, Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey is the intended audience of 1 Peter. So... Is that also who Second Peter's written to, right? But if we're going to try to overlap, all right, are there any places in here that uh, Paul might also have written to? Right. Yeah, there's a couple. I mean, you know, I could have picked maybe a map that highlighted this better. One of them is listed there, right? Ephesus. So Ephesians would be one of them. It's not on this map, but Colossians is right. Colossa, right, is right in there next to, to Ephesus. Right? So the letter to the Colossians. Philemon. Is also seems to be addressed to that same community. Uh, of course, we have Galatia as a region, right? And so, you know, there's, there's debates with, with Galatians, whether it's written to folks in the northern part of that region or folks in the southern part of that region. But either way, right, all of Galatia is included here, right? So maybe Galatians is in view. And so we, we, we realize, yeah, there's some other letters of Paul that have been written to this area. But then uh, what we might consider is what the author tells them, right, is that Paul wrote to you about these matters that he's discussing in Second Peter to you, right? And he said the same kind of things that we're telling you. Okay, well, what are the matters that are being discussed in Second Peter? And do, and do we know of any places where those, mat- those same matters come up in Paul, in, in his letters, right, his correspondence? Well, again, right, we're getting ahead of ourselves because I want you to hear Second Peter here in a minute. But one of the things we'll see that the author is concerned about in this section is how do we understand the delay of Jesus' return? 
Right? And, and one of the one of the answers that he's going to offer right, to problems that is raised is God is faithful to his promise to send his son back, but he's being patient right now because right? he wants you to be able to be saved. If he comes back too soon, there'll be people who won't be saved. Right? So his delay is not a sign of his negligence. It's a sign of his patience for his people. Right? So are there places where Paul kind of grapples with that same question in any of his letters? Right? And really, the, the best place I can find right, is actually in the letter to the Romans. Right? Uh, in chapter 2, Right, and also in chapter 9, Paul will address this. In chapter 2, he's speaking to the Jews, right, and there he's taking them to task. Right? I think as we, as we read Romans, chapter 1, he's addressing the Gentiles in his audience. Chapter 2, he shifts and starts to address the Jews in his audience in Rome. And he's kind of taking them to task for not being faithful right, in the ways they should have to God. They have, they, what he's doing, he's building a case that Jews and Gentiles are equally uh, unfaithful to God, right? And so he's kind of turning his focus to his Jews, and part of what he says there is, look, I know you think the fact that you're not being punished yet is a sign that you've been faithful. It's not. This is just God being patient, right? Giving you a chance to turn around before he brings his wrath, right? So it's more of an accusatory tone there than a comforting one, right? But it's the same kind of logic. Now, in chapter 9, right, we get some of the same discussion from Paul. Here in chapter 9, what Paul's grappling with there is what's going to happen to Israel, and his heart is broken because he sees his people uh, in large part rejecting God's Messiah. And so he's worried, like, what's going to happen to God's elect people? What's going to happen to those that he loves, right, or has loved, his, his chosen ones? Right? And, and part of the argument that he comes back there is, is that God is patiently going to offer, allow time for Israel to come back. Right, that that's really God's long-term plan, is that his elect people, his chosen people, those that he has elected out of all nations, he's not abandoning them. Right? And in his patience, there will be time for them to come back. So there's a couple places in Romans right, where maybe we get this same kind of argument, which would lead us, all right, so maybe what we've got going on here is the community is not primarily here. Right? Again, maybe, maybe this fits with the idea that maybe Second Peter is not actually... Right, being written by Peter to the same audience as First Peter, right? If we're kind of going with the, with the testamentary genre idea, but instead we've got another author, right, writing in the name of Peter to a community that Peter spent a lot of time with, Rome, right? And he's offering them some advice, right, speaking to whatever they're experiencing in the present and reminding them, yeah, Paul also wrote to us, right? Let's remember, Paul wrote to us here in Rome, and he said some things about this, right? This, this is not new, right? This way of thinking about how how to grapple with the delay of Jesus' return. So again, that, that's, those are parts of that puzzle that we might try to keep in mind as we're imagining the setting right, for this, this particular letter. All right, so I, I want us, uh, as we did before, to have a chance to hear Second Peter. And now, now I don't have a mic, so I'm going to move this up in my hand. I'm going to move this out of the way. All right, get myself some, some, move, some, some, some space to move around, okay? Uh, so I want, I want us to hear like we did before. And again, the, the goal here is for you to just, you know, kind of let it wash over you and just see what do you notice when you get to hear it all as, as a whole at one time. Because that's something I think we rarely get to experience. And so that's what we'll do here. And then, and then as we have time, uh, open it up again, right, for at least over a short time, and see what did you notice, right? What struck you about Second Peter as, as you heard it told to you? Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the, by the righteousness of our God.
God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the one who calls us into his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, for this very reason, make every attempt to supply by means of your faith virtue, and through virtue, knowledge, and through knowledge, self-control, and through self-control, steadfastness, and through steadfastness, uh, godliness, and through godliness, brotherly affection, and through brotherly affection, love. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in your knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. For whoever does not have these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, forgetting that he has been cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your election and calling. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are confirmed in the truth that you have, still, I think it right, so long as I am in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our, our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Therefore, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we proclaimed to you the, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we are eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when God, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him in the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart, knowing this, first of all, no prophecy comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of humans, but people spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, false prophets also arose among the people, and there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. But their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And, and their destruction is not asleep. 
For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, committing them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, and if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood on the world of the ungodly. And if by turning Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous heart when he saw the, 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 the lawless deeds that they did. Then God knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble when they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before God. But, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, these will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and, and blemishes, reveling in their deceits while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray. They have followed after the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. You remember, right? A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained that prophet from madness. Well, these, these are like waterless springs, mists driven by a storm. For them that the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And if, after escaping the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have heard about the way of righteousness than after hearing it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. You know, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Beloved, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. And in both of them, I am stirring up your sincere hearts by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own evil desires. And they will say, 
Where is the promise of his coming? Huh? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Ah, but they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, through water, by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing for that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will, will be burned up and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of godliness and in holiness, waiting for and, and, and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will, will pass away with a roar, the heavens will be burned up and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. And therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the Lord's patience as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks about them, and he speaks in them of these matters. Now, now there are some things in them that are hard to understand. That the, uh, the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do with the other scriptures. But you, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away by the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the age of eternity. Amen. Right, so, so there's there's Second Peter. I don't know about you. It feels different to me in some ways than First Peter, right? Uh, so, uh, as we have some time, what are some what what you notice about Second Peter as you heard it? It's more intense. Yeah. What do you think makes it more intense? I would agree. Okay. Okay. Got a lot of warnings, a lot of predictions. Um, yeah, the, and, and there's a kind of intensity to those, right? That we're hearing about again, heavens being burned up and dissolved, and things melting away, and things. I mean, so that, yeah, there's kind of a apocalyptic, apocalyptic intensity, we might say, right? To Second Peter, he's, he's looking forward to the end, right, and reminding people it's coming, right? I think that does increase the intensity of, of this particular letter. Anything else? What's that? Okay. Yeah, yeah, I don't, this doesn't come up as much, uh, maybe at all, I'm thinking about in First Peter, right? What is this author concerned about? It's not 
being maligned from those outside the community. It's, it's a concern about what's going on in the community. Right? And you've got to watch out right, that there's people within your own community right, who might be leading you astray. Yikes, that, that adds to the intensity, right? That's kind of scary, uh, I think. Right? Uh, so yeah, that, that, that's, uh, it's, it feels different right, in terms of what he's concerned about here right, compared to what, what the concern is in, in 1 Peter. Right? Anything else that you, that you notice as you heard 2 Peter? Very personal? Yeah. That you hear that Peter reveals some about himself. Yeah, so, so you have the author talking about being an eyewitness and remembering stories, right? Being there at the, at the transfiguration, right? We were there with him on the holy mountain. We, sir, we heard that very voice ourselves, right? So you get those kind of personal details. And, and of course, there's the very personal detail of, of the author preparing for his own death. Right? Yeah, I, I know that the, the putting off of my body will be soon. Right, so that's a very personal detail. And the language about the audience. Right, there's, there, uh, this is true in 1 Peter 2, but I know as I was learning it, I was struck by how often he refers to them as beloved. All right, again, that's not a word that's absent in 1 Peter. It does show up there, but I, you know, I feel like there's, there's a greater concentration of that kind of language right, that's being spoken to the, to the audience. Yeah? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you do get some of that. And, and that's one of the places where if you go in Jude, right, you see a similar list. You get, you get uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, and you have the angels, right? You get, you get some similar kinds of lists there, right? And, and I think it's functioning in a similar way here in Second Peter. Um, he he's con- seems concerned, right, that they are doubting the assurance of the prophecies that were given before, right? That there are, there are things that God has promised will happen, right? And there's, there's some doubts starting to arise. Are those things actually going to happen? And so you get some of these appeals. Let's look back at some examples, right? Uh, the flood, right? And, and, and what's that? You know, the, yes, right? These, these kind of things. We can, we can have some assurance in these because we have these other examples that, that tell us not to doubt, right? But we can count on God as, as a God who fulfills his promises. And then the other thing that you get, of course, with, uh, with that list with the angels and, and Noah and, and then Sodom and Gomorrah and, and Lot is this distinction, right? God is able to discern, right, in his work, and he can do two things. Rescue the godly at the same time that he's keeping the unrighteous under punishment. And that's what some of those examples seem to be, seem to be driving home, right? And so, again, that, that's maybe telling us something about what they're concerned with, right, in, in, in this audience, what he's, trying to, what he's trying to tell them. Yeah, what'd you, what'd you hear? Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a nice insight. I appreciate you saying that. Um, yeah, because sometimes the story gets told, uh, this kind of mighty rift between these two figures. Right? And, and a lot of that would come from what Paul himself writes about in Galatians. And he talks about this conflict they had in Antioch, right, over who's eating with the Gentiles. And Paul, right, calls Peter to his face in front of everybody else, a hypocrite, right? And there's this kind of big blow up. And then Paul never tells us in Galatians that what, what happened, right? Uh, what, was there a restoration to that relationship at any point? And, and maybe, right, something like Second Peter provides a, a, another, another clue, right? Another piece of that puzzle that we can see, hey, maybe, maybe there's some 
good reason, right, for hope that, that, they, that they were reconciled. And, and of course, again, in Christian tradition, they both end up in Rome in the 60s and are, are executed, right, uh, within just a couple of years of each other there. So where they, they, there, there are plenty of other opportunities for their, their paths to cross again as, as brothers. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, one more, one more thing. Yeah. Or just someone have, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 it is, I think it is meant to try to encourage him, keep striving, hold on to hope, and in that way it's similar to First Peter. Right? I think that's something we hear in First Peter. First Peter is also trying to affirm to them, look, that the, the day of, of Jesus' return is something you can count on. Right? And that should give you hope in whatever trials you're facing in the present. And that, that's a similar move that the, that the author makes here. Right? There, there may be some who are leading you to want to think that this isn't going to happen, but that is something you can hang a peg on. That is, that is sure, right? and that can provide some, some hope and encouragement in this time. All right, so one more hand, and then I'll maybe, there did I not. Okay, all right, all right, all right you'll, take, you'll take that opportunity. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're going to come back, and next time I w- we want to get into that, that list of, of different qualities that, that we have in, in 1 Peter 1. It's a really uh, powerful passage, I think, within, within the letter as a whole. Um, and so, yeah, well, I want to kind of pay attention to what is he saying there? What, is it, what, what might we what might take from that, that list of, of different virtues right, that, that, that kind of comp- compound upon one another and build right, on, up to, on up to love? Uh, all right, so a c- couple things that, that I might highlight here that we have, we have touched on already, right? But if we want to highlight some sections in Second uh, Peter that will tell us something about the audience, right? If we look at some of, of, of the, the passages here in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, right, we might be able to highlight some of the things that we've already noticed that seem to be a concern for, for this author and for this community. We'll come back up and do them one at a time, so you can, you can see the list here. But if we look in 2, 1 to 3, part of what we see here is this concern that, that false teachers are going to come. Right? You will have false teachers among you, just as there have been false prophets among God's people before. So be prepared. Right? Be on the lookout. And uh, they're going to be people who uh, are marked by greed. That's one of the things he mentions. Right? But he's also very concerned. They're going to draw people into their licentious ways, into, the, into their lawless ways of living. Right? Sensuality is the word that we get in the, in the ESV here. My, many will follow their sensuality. Now, now this is the section in chapter 2 where we're, we're predicting the future, right? And then remember it kind of switches back and all of a sudden it's, it's, it's shifted to the present tense. Yeah, I think, I think it's possible the author is, is again writing, right, predicting things that are actually happening in, in the midst of this community. Right? And so one of the things that may be troubling this community is we're seeing our beloved brothers and sisters get kind of swept off into this, this, this way of living. That's not right. right? And, and then and, and the way the, the letter is set up, right? again, if, it's, if we imagine maybe as this, this uh, intentional uh, literary fiction, right? The, we're, we're having Peter predict, yeah, that, that's going to happen. Right? And so the fact that it is happening is maybe not as, as unsettling or, or shocking, but we're warned. Right? There, there are people who will be drawn away because of the teaching of these false teachers. So, so false teaching is a problem, right? and the success of the false teachers is a problem in this community. Right? That's one of the things that they're grappling with. Okay? Uh, and then if we look a little bit later in chapter 2, we, we have some, some more uh, emphasis on, on the kinds of things that are being taught. Really, 11 through 22 is a lengthy description, maybe in two blocks, of these false teachers. 
right? It starts with the section about them being bold and willful, right? Despising authority. Right? And it moves into the section talking about them being waterless springs. That's a devastating metaphor, right? What's the spring supposed to do? Right? Provide life, water, right? You go to it to, 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 to you know, to, like an oasis in a desert, right? And they are springs, promising things, but they're in the end waterless, right? Pretty, pretty strong critique of them, right? We get these pictures of the false teachers as they're being described here who are enticing people to leave uh, the, the righteous way, the straight road, by promising, we're told, freedom. They promised them freedom. And, and the picture I think we get is of people who have been followers of Jesus, right, but now who are going off in another direction. So there's all this concern, if you remember, you might have heard this, it would have been better for them never to have known at all the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn away from the holy commandments that were delivered to them, right? So, so the, it, again, it emphasizes for this community, the concern is not with people outside, right? The concern is with those who have been part of their body, that are that are maybe leaving or at least stirring up things within the community, right? And so it's it's a different kind of problem, and and, and yeah, maybe a more intense kind of problem that they have, right? And then the other thing we get in terms of their teaching. So both of these, what we, what the emphasis here is that they are leading people into uh, um, a a lawless way of living, a, a way of living based on sensuality or a licentious way of living, right? Leaving the straight road, embracing their passions, this kind of thing. They're leading people this way under this promise of freedom. Right? So, that, so that's, that's part of the problem. Then the other problem we get is, uh, and again, it may be the same group, maybe these are different groups, but maybe there's some ways that we can connect them. The other thing that comes up is that there are people scoffing their belief, particularly the, their belief in the return of Jesus at some point in the future, or that, you know, that, that things are going to come to an end, that God is going to bring judgment. All right, so that some scoffers will assume that the parousia, right, that's a word that means the coming of Jesus, Right? Some people are assuming that the parousia has been disproven because it hasn't happened yet. Again, part of, part of what we have to keep in mind here right, is that for these earliest communities of Jesus followers, they by and large believed, from the evidence I think we get in these in, in, in letters here, that, this is, that the return of Jesus was something that was going to happen soon, maybe within, likely within their own lifetime. Right? And if Second Peter right, is maybe written a little bit later, and we've had some of the members of the Christian community that, that have died without this happening, right, ever since the fathers fell asleep. That's the language we get here. All things are going on as they were. Nothing changed. Right? And so for a community that expected that, that return of Jesus to happen imminently, then the delay, right, some might take that as, way, as, as, as a way to prove it's not going to happen. It would have already happened if it was going to. And the fact that it hasn't proves that's not coming. Right, so one of the questions we might think about is, is there some kind of connection between this scoffing about the day of judgment and embracing a lawless way of living? Right, and I think there's a way you might be able to connect these up. Right, maybe it's not even that hard to connect these up. Right, if there's no longer going to be a point in time, or if you can convince people that there is no longer a point in time where people will be judged for how they have lived, right, that kind of opens the door to live in kind of whatever way you want. Enjoy that freedom. And so I think there's a sense in which, you know, the, these concerns are not maybe separate groups, but there could be a connection, right, between those who are denying, denying the judgment day and also encouraging a certain way of living. All right, uh, we're going to take our break here. Uh, so we've got half an hour. Get up, stretch, right, get some food, get something to drink, and then we'll come back. And, and when we come back, we're going to dig a little bit more into how is the author going to respond to 
these false teachers uh, who were scoffing the day of judgment.